and welcome to Scare You to Sleep. I'm your host, Shelby Scott. First up, I wanted to let you know that Scare You to Sleep merch is now available. Yay! It is available on TeePublic. The link is in the description. There are notebooks and pillows and hoodies and masks. The classic t-shirts and hoodies both go up to 5XL. Go check them out. I currently have the logo one, of course, and a special Omail Swamp Tour t-shirt as a fun little scary to sleep Easter egg to wear around. Again, the link will be in the show notes. Now, on to this week's stories. I have four haunting tales for you this week, and I'm gonna be completely honest. This episode gets squishy, so please check those trigger warnings before diving in. Remember, you can find the trigger warnings in the show notes. First up this week, speaking of the O'Mail Swamp Tour, this is another horrifying story set in Louisiana. Author Nick Egan has for us a hand in inheritance. Even the most noble families have skeletons in their closets. Let's go. Mr. Jackson Moss had been 98 when the emphysema finally took him. I had known the man for my entire life, and to watch him deteriorate before my eyes was no easy feat. He had been one of the richest men in all of Louisiana, and one of the kindest. I always thought maybe heaven was rewarding him intentionally for his goodness, considering how fortunate he appeared to be. The whole family was shrouded in success, all of his children and grandchildren, his wife. I don't know which was worse, watching his body wither or his mind. I spent his last few weeks frequently at his bedside as we went over his estate. It was hard to see him as frail and gaunt as he was, bedridden and plagued with a wet, hacking cough that frequently produced a dark green splatter of mucus on his blankets, which he apologized for profusely when he noticed. He had been missing his left hand for as long as I knew him, but I barely paid mind to it until those last days. I assumed it had something to do with his mental state, but he rubbed the knob where his wrist once was excessively, especially when we spoke. It was hard not to watch, and maintaining a professional demeanor with him as he began to become more paranoid took a toll on me. By the time he gave me the chest, he was so far gone that it was almost a relief when he breathed his last. He obsessed over the box that required a key to open, and the envelope he gave me with it was wax-sealed with his family's crest. He never mentioned concern for what happened to his plantation when he passed, but that box might as well have been his entire fortune. You have to make sure that you follow what I've written, Morgan, he wheezed. I assured him that I would, and that I wouldn't open either items until the reading of his will. But he asked and asked and asked every time I saw him. His funeral was held on the property he loved, and he was buried in the family's mausoleum, like his father had been, 
It was at the mausoleum a few days later that I found myself standing with his three sons, three daughters, and his widow. His will had been extremely specific about where the reading would be held, in the cemetery on the property where he was buried. I might have found this strange if it weren't for his behavior right before his death. He had made quite a few changes to his last will and testament in the weeks preceding. The Spanish moss hung over us and the bright pink rose bushes throughout the tombs, like the hair of old women from the oak trees. The family was quiet as I approached, the gravel beneath my feet crunching with every step as I held the chest in one arm and my briefcase in the other. Their familiar faces were heavier than I had ever seen them, and the oldest of the boys, John, appeared to be sweating profusely. They had a bottle of whiskey with glasses placed on a card table that had been brought out, and Jackson's widow, Lita, offered me a glass as I approached. If I had known what I was about to have to do, I probably would have accepted the glass. I probably would have drunk the whole fucking bottle. We stood in something like a circle around the little card table as I placed the box and my case down gingerly. Mr. Moss's instructions had been clear. The will was to be gone through before either the envelope or the chest were opened. I had been stifling my curiosity about the items since he'd given them to me. I now felt a rush of anticipation as I read aloud the last wishes of this once great man, and his family listened attentively, with eyes like dolls fixed on me. There was a dread in the air I couldn't place, and I chalked it up to grief in the back of my mind as I went on. The closer we got to the end of the will, the more anxious John Moss appeared to get. His wife was holding on to him tightly as I finished the last words, putting the document down and reaching for the wax-sealed envelope. Their faces seemed to grow graver, and John appeared as if he might run. My stomach fell with the weight of my obvious lack of understanding of the situation. The envelope opened easily enough, and a small iron key fell into my hand from it. The letter inside was concise, brief. I read over it once in my mind, then again, then a third time. It couldn't be right. I looked up with my mouth gaped and the blood draining from my face, my eyes studying the now horrified faces of the party. Who is it? Lita asked, clutching the arm of her youngest daughter. John was almost shaking now. This, this can't be serious, I breathed, clumsily moving towards the chest with the small key. Who is it? My head was spinning too fast to answer her as I fumbled to open the chest. Oh, oh, oh my god, Morgan, who is it? John yelped, and I removed from the box 
a glass jar full of some murky liquid. A jar with a left hand in it, still bearing a wedding band. What the fuck? I jumped, nearly dropping the thing. John came over, grabbing the letter and tearing at it with his eyes. It's me. You knew it would be. You're the oldest. Lita soothed, placing a hand on her son's back. We aren't seriously going to do this. I gasped, taking the paper from him and reading it once more. Hands shaking. We have to. Lita murmured, reaching towards the chest. She pulled a steel knife from it with a serrated edge, extending the handle to me. Fuck no. I stepped back, watching as John rubbed his left hand, shaking. Don't ask one of his brothers to do this to him, Lita pleaded, and I looked over at all of them, completely dumbfounded. It felt like an eternity had passed before John with a deep breath, took the jar from my hand. John, you you aren't. Mark, please. Lita sighed. John opened the jar, the putrid smell piercing through the cool air. He reached in, removing his father's hand, the sliminess of it visible. His wife, Sarah, clung to him as he put one of the preserved fingers in his mouth, biting down with a crunch that made my stomach flip. And I turned away, hearing every gag and unspeakable noise he made as he finished it. His family surrounded him, offering words of encouragement. And when he was finished... Lita once again offered me the knife. Why are you doing this? I asked, trying to find reason in her sweet old face, or insanity, or anything that explained what was happening. It's a small price to pay for all we have, she sighed and all of her children let out a chorus of amens behind her words. Morgan, your father was there when Jackson paid his due, and for generations your family has been our lawyers. They've overseen this since the very beginning of it. I tried to wrap my mind around what she was saying. My father's words... It's a pain when one of them dies, echoing in my mind. He never said, of course not. This ritual is sacred. John was walking towards the mausoleum now, his steps heavy. He peeled the door open, turning back to all of us, his face hollower than I had ever seen a man's get. His brothers followed him one by one.
as did the rest of us. I felt like I had woken up in a nightmare, and I am not sure what kept me from taking off. John walked towards his father's casket, trembling as he placed his left hand on it, his wedding band gleaming in the sunlight, peeking in through a small window as he shook violently, his hand making a tap, tap, tap on the casket. I held the knife in my hand, the blade stained in a dark, rusty color. I glanced from it to him, and he gave me a weak nod. It's my job, he muttered, my birthright. Shouldn't there at least be a doctor here? I pleaded, and John winced, looking like he was fighting the urge to vomit. Lita brought me the bottle of whiskey, and I took a long gulp before handing it over to John, who nearly drank the rest of it. What little was left, he poured over his wrist, looking at me with wet eyes. I don't have an explanation for why I did what I did that day. I supposed I felt like I had to. Some fucked up sense of duty. I have never heard a human scream in such pain. I have never heard anything scream that way. The metallic scent stung my nostrils as the rest of the family held him still, and I sawed the place I had been told to cut like I was trying to cut through a piece of meat on a butcher's block. The bones were the worst part, and John writhed in agony as I did the best I could to hurry the sick ordeal along. Lita was reading from some book as this went on, and besides that, my gags and grunts and John's laments the room was silent. Just us and the horrid sounds coming from the knife in his flesh. Like a sick trance had taken over. We all just went along. When it was finally over, I dropped the blade and rushed for the door, puking immediately. My hands were red, and my black suit felt sticky and I wanted nothing more than to strip. Lita emerged, the jar in her hands, now with John's hand in the place his father's had been. She placed it in the chest and closed it once more. Thank you, Morgan, she murmured wiping her own hands off on a handkerchief she had pulled from her dress pocket. I looked at her for a moment, then noticed John leading the rest out, his hand bound in a towel. He looked dizzy and could hardly walk, his wife clearly holding him up to the best of her ability. She was telling him what a great job he'd done. And they both thanked me profusely, I stared at them all, 
the rest of the siblings and their spouses chatting away now, as if they hadn't seen the whole thing, as if nothing had happened. They agreed John should go to the hospital. Casually. Like it had been in question. And we all left the cemetery. Together. My eyes fixed on my feet. Clutching my briefcase. The children were playing outside with one of their nannies. And I saw John and his wife's little boy. Maybe five years old laughing and spinning. His hands were up in the air, and I looked at them, his chubby little fingers, then at his father's bloody mess, and I wanted to disappear. Heaven hadn't smiled on a man's kindness after all. Heaven wasn't here at all. Next is a short but sweet tale that is sure to make you double check that you've locked your front door. This is by Lily McCree and it's called Home. The window's open. Was it open when I came in? I brush the thought away in favor of walking over to the table. I pick up the chapstick that's on the bedside table. I put on a light coating. Cherry. I set it back carefully. My next stop is the bed. Soft, warm, comfortable. The silence is almost deafening. Where is Hades? Usually he comes in and lays with me. Is he at the vet today? I look at my phone's calendar. Weird. He doesn't have an appointment today. I look at my phone's clock. It's only 11. She doesn't get home till 3. I let my eyes close. A small hum leaves my lips as I fall back against the covers. Thud. That's the front door. Panic sets in. I crawl under the bed. No one is supposed to be home yet. Who is here? I clasp a hand over my face as I try to calm myself. I need to stay calm. If I'm found, they could hurt me. The footsteps come up the stairs. The door opens. Wait. Those are her shoes. Why is she home this early? I stay hidden. Weird. I could have sworn I closed that window. Damn it. I'm getting sloppy. I should pay more attention. Oh well. I don't think she knows I'm here. The bed creaks under her weight. I wait to check the time. What if she sees the light? Guess it's the waiting game. Feels like hours before I finally hear her soft snoring. 
I slowly crawl out from under the bed. She left the door open. Good. Good. The door is too loud. I pull the covers over her. She snuggles into them and lets out a small hum of approval. How cute. I sneak out of her room. Hades rubs against my legs. There he is. I smile and give him a pet. He follows me to the kitchen. Huh. His food is empty. I fill it up for him. Good boy. He happily eats as I look through her calendar. I spend some time adding her schedule to my phone's calendar. I can still taste her chapstick on my lips. I smile. Hades rubs against me affectionately. There's shuffling in her room. She usually sleeps longer after work. Must have been a tough shift. Poor baby. She's coming downstairs. That's my cue to leave. I open the back door and close it quietly. I avoid the soft dirt of her backyard. The recent rains have left it muddy. There is no room for any more mistakes. So I'm extra careful. I avoid any light and head into the woods that lines the back of her yard. I turn back and look at our home. Till tomorrow, my love. You know, one thing I've always struggled with is finding time to manage my finances. At the end of a busy week, the last thing I want to do is spend time budgeting all of my expenses or tracking down customer service teams to cancel old subscriptions I no longer use. Plus, I am not the best with numbers. But now, I use Rocket Money and it does all that for me. Rocket Money is a personal finance app that finds and cancels your unwanted subscriptions, monitors your spending, and helps lower your bills so that you can grow your savings. With Rocket Money, I have full control over my subscriptions and a clear view of my expenses. I can see all of my subscriptions in one place, and if I see something I don't want, Rocket Money can help me cancel it with a few taps. I love how the dashboard shows me this month's spending compared to last month, so I can clearly see my spending habits. Plus, they'll help me create a custom budget and keep my spending on track. Rocket Money will even try to negotiate your bills for you by up to 20%. All you have to do is submit a picture of your bill and Rocket Money takes care of the rest. And I know you do not have the time or mental bandwidth to deal with customer service, but don't worry, they'll deal with customer service for you. Rocket Money has over 5 million users and has saved a total of 5 hundred million dollars in canceled subscriptions, saving members up to $740 a year when using all of the app's features. Stop wasting money on things you don't use. Cancel your unwanted subscriptions by going to rocketmoney.com slash scare you to sleep. That's rocketmoney.com slash scare you to sleep. Rocketmoney.com slash scare you to sleep. Our third story of the week is by an author I have missed having on the show so much, Wellington Hutzler. You remember Wellington from his horrifying tale about a sock puppet named Zoot in episode 7. 
he has for us this week, The Midnight Walk. I'm not the type of guy who gets easily shaken. I've walked through some nasty neighborhoods in the middle of the night and felt right at home. The secret is carrying yourself like a badass. If someone is walking in your direction, you move like you're about to go through them. Keep yourself facing forward, and people will think twice about crossing your path. That's not to say that nothing ever happened. Every once in a while, I'd have someone try to get a little too ambitious until I knocked his dick in the dirt. Not gonna lie. I liked it. The danger gave me an exhilarating feeling. It allowed me to center myself and get lost in my thoughts for hours. The first time I fended off a mugger was almost a moment of clarity to me. I sold off my car and began walking everywhere. Of course, it took longer to get around, but it also saved me money and was good for my cardio. When I wasn't working, sleeping, or eating, I was usually walking somewhere or training my body at the gym. There was little time for much else. You might think I'm crazy, but it was the first time in my life that I felt truly focused on something. This started around March and carried on for months until it ended one night during the tail end of summer. The air was humid, and the sky shined with the stars that were bright enough to pierce through the city's lights. It's embarrassing to admit now, but I would often look up at those tiny dots and imagine the great warriors before me looking up at that sky while they too were out on a midnight walk. That night, like many nights, consisted of me aimlessly walking around the city and admiring the scenery. Occasionally, I'd come across people who meant no harm, but the city had an unusual stillness about it when the hour got late. I had been staring off into a large fountain at the city park and reminiscing about something nostalgic when I heard a peculiar sound. Somewhere off in the distance, I could hear a soft and eerie tune. It was difficult to decide whether it had been singing or humming. I couldn't pinpoint which direction it was coming from, and that gave me an uncomfortable feeling that I wasn't used to. I decided to start moving and keep close attention on what I could hear around me. For a moment, I breathed a sigh of relief that I had gotten away from whatever the hell it was. Then the sound came back, and this time... It was accompanied by light footsteps. There was no doubt in my mind that the noise was coming from right behind me, and yet every time I looked back over my shoulder, there was nothing there. I didn't want to run, but no matter how fast I walked or what detour I took, the sound never lost me. The noises seemed to get closer and louder the more I tried to escape. Looking back now, I couldn't tell you how long this went on for. It could have been 20 minutes or an hour. Eventually, I started becoming annoyed and frustrated instead of scared. At one point, 
I turned around the corner of a building and then peeked my head out to look back. All I saw was one leg stepping into a nearby alley. It was all I needed to light a fire under my ass. I clenched my fists, stomped my way over to them and shouted, Whoever you are, you better turn the fuck around right now. No matter what shape or size, I had enough and was amping myself up to confront my stalker. Who the... were the only words out of my mouth before I turned the corner and found myself facing... no one. It was an empty, dead end with no other way out. I frantically scanned the area and tried to work out the logistics of scaling the walls before giving up. Regardless, the noise was gone, and I decided to hightail it back home. I quietly hurried down the sidewalk, with only the street lamps lighting my way, trying to calm myself from the adrenaline. I knew there were drugged-out weirdos looming around in the shadows, but this was beyond them. I tried to think if there was anyone who'd be willing to go this far just to fuck with me. And then... I heard a new sound. This wasn't delicate or quiet, but an audible shuffling of feet that were coming up behind me. My momentary sense of security had been disrupted, and I needed to think fast. Then, I had a big smile grow across my face. I was the flytrap, and this annoying insect was about to be dealt with. The joints on my fingers were pale white. I let the shuffling get so close that I could practically feel breathing on the back of my neck. I readied my fist with the meanest face I could make as I screamed, I fucking warned you! I spun around on the tip of my toes and froze. My right hand had been stuck in midair person that had been following me was me. Or at least they looked like me. Every zit, every scar, and every article of clothing was in place to make a perfect replica standing three feet away from my face. I couldn't believe what I was looking at. And for a moment, he seemed genuinely startled by me. He then gave an over-exaggerated, cartoonish expression that had been delayed by a few seconds. The skin over his eyes sagged upwards, revealing a moist, pink flesh under it. The pupils moved further up into his head and his mouth sunk downwards. His legs sprang him upward like a jack-in-the-box. The arms flailed wildly and loosened like wet spaghetti. A distorted voice, which sounded like an old audio recording and didn't sync up with his lips, said, I'm sorry. He quickly laid his body flat and sunk to the ground as he slithered away into the darkness. The details on him began to look less like me, while his eyes kept contact with mine. The smaller he became the larger and more defined his pupils were. They held an uncanny gaze that punctured me to my very being. Then, 
he was gone. I stood there and catatonically thought to myself until a passing motorist asked me what was wrong. I knew he wouldn't believe me, so I convinced him it was a panic attack. I eventually returned home and spent the rest of the night staring out the window. When I did finally go to sleep, I experienced vivid, terrifying nightmares like I never felt before. But when I woke up, they had already left my memory. All that was left were the specific feelings of anxiety and dread they had brought me. I bought myself a shitty car that gets me where I need to go, and I never go out after dark. My time is now spent obsessively looking over the internet for people who have seen what I've seen. It's hard for me to differentiate what's real and what's not. There is a small community of us trying to filter through all of it. Some of the stories have given me familiar residual nightmares that pale in comparison to what I had the first time. I keep myself up at night thinking about what would have happened if I never turned around. I have mentally noted all the blind spots in my apartment and I obsessively look out the window for hours on end. I don't know if I have the courage or willpower to face him again. The moment I turned around and saw that thing looking at me, he had all the power in the situation. He just didn't know it. And our last story of the night gets a little sticky. This is Helen's Hickory Tree. By Connie Lee. Everett O'Neill had heard all the stories about the west side of Trejero Forest, and they came flooding back to him as his and Jimmy Coulter's feet mushed through the cold sludge toward the forest's blackened hickory tree. Those stories were the only good parts about Sunday school with Reverend Mack, whose one good eye could only focus for so long, leaving the older kids distracted and turning the younger ones' brains to mush with Kincaid Mill's legends. One particularly popular one with them was the story of Helen Turner, whose fiancé lured her into that west side with the promise of a hunting trip before their wedding. Instead of getting any big game, her fiancé shot Helen in the back as she turned to see the blooming hickory leaves. Of course, with no one in sight, Helen's fiancé knew that he had gotten away clean. No one would know that he was relieved to be able to rid himself of the woman that he had no true feelings for. Everett and his best friend Jimmy, only eight at the time, listened intently. What did they do with her body? Jimmy asked. Supposedly they gave her a funeral under the hickory tree, because he claimed that 
it had been their favorite place. Fernie Beltron, one of the older kids, shrugged. Stories say her ghost is at the tree, and it's so beautiful, it kills men on sight. Reverend Mac, who usually eavesdropped, would always say the same thing after hearing how Helen was now a soul-sucking spirit. Hell hath no fury like a woman scorned. Just be careful. Jimmy gladly listened, wide-eyed, but Everett had always gotten something else out of the stories. The excitement of the fattened deer and smooth badger coats. Now, twelve years later, Everett whistled as he put down his badger traps with Jimmy following close behind, shotgun in hand. Man, Everett, I knew this thing was going to be eerie, but nothing like this, Jimmy said, eyes scaling up the hickory tree's rotted bark, spotted with oozing orange sap along its broken edges and filling its deep holes. Everett rolled his eyes. I told you, there's nothing to worry about. Just put the damn traps down already before your voice scares away the wildlife. Even the flies and birds are getting tired of you. After laying down the last trap, both men laid low within the brush covering the hickory tree. With all the buzzing, we're bound to get something, Everett exclaimed. Come on, Jim, quit being nervous. Suddenly, both of them heard the snap of one of their traps in the distance. Wow, that sounded like a big one, Jimmy cried as they jumped to go see what they'd gotten. But instead of being proud of the first catch of the day, all they could see was the gushing, dark remains of whatever was left from a decaying squirrel. What the hell? Jimmy backed away. Do you smell that? It's like sulfur from the mill. Everett disappointingly replied as they walked back to their spot. Maybe that's why no one comes here. The animals must be off. Sitting down, Jimmy noticed how their place was covered in orange sap, and the puddle seemed to be growing by the second. Damn it, Everett. Let's move somewhere else. It's all over me now, he said as he tried to wipe off the back of his pants. Just be quiet. This is the best place. Everett snapped as he tried to wipe off the sap on his hands and his jacket. As much as he wiped, the sap just got stickier, refusing to leave his skin. No, it's it's not going away. Everett turned to see Jimmy starting to freak out as the puddle around him continued to grow. The orange mess slowly trickling its way back onto his knees and legs. The sap on his hands had started turning his fingers into mush, the skin slowly peeling back and dropping to drenched pieces around the tree's soil. Everett, help me! Jimmy cried as he tried to move his hands around his jacket and pants, only being successful in getting more of the sap on himself. It's burning me! Everett looked down and saw the sap creep up his pant legs, soaking his leg skin, and he felt it moving through into his bones and liquefying them. He pushed through what was left of his hands to get Jimmy away, but as he looked at him in the face, one last time, all he saw was how his eyes had turned tangerine 
and the bitter colored pustules protruded out of his skin, filling the air with the same sulfur-like odor they had smelled before. In his efforts to help his friend, Everett failed to notice how the joy of the wildlife around them died and was replaced with a dim figure, watching the men slowly fading away with delight. Jim, you gotta hang on. I'm gonna get you out of that, so just stay with me. Everett cried as he held onto Jimmy's coat as tight as he could, feeling himself filling up with the same severe burning. Just when he couldn't hold on anymore, Everett looked up and saw the figure in front of him bent down, comforting what was left of Jimmy. When it turned to look at him, the rest of his strength had been pushed out of him, and he couldn't even let out a scream as he saw the face of the woman, filled with reddish gangrene and the orange sap leaking out of the gaping holes in her back. With Jimmy's remains in one hand, she leaned over and caressed Everett's face, her touch separating the rest of his cheek flesh from his skin, exposing the orange sap eating its way through his gums. With his last bit of air, as he felt himself being filled with the ooze little by little, Everett was able to cry out, Please, God, let it end. Thanks for listening. Remember to go check out the new merch on TeePublic. Again, the link will be in the show notes. My chair is being creaky right now, of course. Thanks, chair. Um, Sorry for so much goopiness this week. If it makes you feel any better, I made a mess in my office bringing those awful, awful sounds to you. So it was like payback. So we're even, right? Okay. Um, (laughs) Remember to follow the show on Twitter, uh, Tumblr, Reddit, Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. I don't ever check Reddit because I know that's a good place to be anonymous and to go vent and my feelings are sensitive. Uh, So go, have fun. Uh, Tumblr, I don't check either. I don't even know if it works, if it's still uploading each episode or like letting everyone know that there's a new episode. Um, Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook are the perfect places to interact with me, mostly on Twitter. Um, Facebook too, a Facebook group. Make sure you answer the questions or Rosemary will punch you in the face. She won't. Um, Maybe she will. I don't know. I don't want to speak for her. Just answer the questions. Please, 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 please. I think that's all for tonight. Um, Thank you for everything. Thank you for just being there for me and being there for each other. And remember to drink water and to take care of yourself do something fun this week. I don't have any baking planned this week like I usually do because I already did it last night. And for those of you, if any of you want to know, this week I made a chocolate cake that is soaked in sweetened condensed milk and coconut cream topped with a layer of this like fluffy cream cheese whipped cream frosting stuff with toasted coconut over the top. I posted a picture of it on Instagram, on my personal Instagram, not the show's Instagram. Uh, so yeah, 
for those of you who are keeping up with my baking every week, <laughs> I don't know. I, I literally think none of you are. And I keep forcing this on you. I'm so sorry. <laughs> anyway, um, hope you have a great weekend. I love you all. Go get some sleep. Sweet dreams. Item number SCP-5186 SCP-7160 SCP-7533 Object Class Euclid Keter Safe Special Containment Procedures Spreading across the hemisphere and kicking up vast amounts of ash and dust <laughs> The only thing I could hear was 7219 <laughs> laughing <laughs> Do you remember your name? Heartland Counseling. Appointment update. I feel them again. Heartland Counseling. Appointment update. They're in my ears! Heartland Counseling. Appointment update. Nobody understands! SCP Archives is a weekly fiction podcast. Each episode, we dive into the strange, the unknown, and the... Find us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or at scparchives.com.